For a lot of people, warm weather signifies the start of the camping season. If you live somewhere that's always warm, every weekend might be camping season for you. But for a lot of us, it takes a special time in a special place. More than anything, it takes special people. All around the world, couples go camping together. And for a lot of them, it's a great time. It's a chance to get out in nature and bond. But some couples don't come back from their camping trips. And this is one of those stories. My name is Brian, and I'm the host and creator of Among the Dirt and Trees, a show where we explore true crime cases that occur out in nature. In this episode, we're going to discuss the violent murder of a young couple and how we caught their murderer nearly 50 years later through everyone's new favorite trend, genealogy testing. In Wisconsin during July of 1976, the weather was right for camping. This is why a young and loving couple, David Schuldis and Ellen Matthews, decided to head out to a local campsite in the Green Bay area. The two were recently engaged and had plans for a bright future together. When the two of them set out for their camping trip, they made sure that they had the right supplies for a fun trip. They found a nice little spot and they made camp. And then they decided to go for a walk to enjoy the nature. Along the way, Ellen decided that she needed to go to the restroom. Now, this is one of those fancy campsites, so it had a bathroom. And this is where the story really just plays on one of my biggest fears. As you guys know by now, I love scary movies. Slasher films, ghost stories, and especially movies where nature fights back. But horror films always have a really common trend. Inevitably, there is a scene where someone goes to the bathroom, and you just know that something terrifying is going to happen to them. For this reason, I have a completely irrational fear of bathrooms. (laughs) When it gets dark, the bathroom becomes a scary place to me. Whether it is a serial killer hiding in the shower, you have to do your karate chop into the shower curtain, or a ghost that could be waiting to like cut the lights and crawl out of the mirror, I am always a little bit worried that something terrible is going to happen to me when I go to the bathroom. In this case, something terrible did happen. When Ellen Matthews went into the bathroom to handle her business, she heard a strange noise. The noise was the sound of a gun going off. And I have absolutely no doubt in my mind that Ellen Matthews went into full panic mode. This wasn't the kind of area where people were supposed to be hunting, but someone was. Unfortunately, they were hunting animals. Ellen ran out of the bathroom, and that was when she learned that her beloved fiancé David had been shot. And when she locked eyes with the killer, it was clear that it was no accident. Now, I couldn't find anything confirmed that stated whether or not David died immediately, but based on the wounds, the police believe that this is the case. He was shot in the neck, which obviously has some pretty important parts. So, when faced with an impossibly terrifying situation, Ellen did the only thing that she could do. She ran away from the killer and hoped that she would escape. Unfortunately for Ellen, running through the woods went about as well as you would expect it to in a horror film. The man responsible for killing her fiancé caught her. The killer raped Ellen, and then he shot her twice. And for a long time, that was all that anyone knew. It was a completely random killing. Just a very bad thing that happened to two good people. There was no connection between the victims and the killer, which meant that it was nearly impossible to find the person that was responsible for it. But that was not the end of this case. 
technology is forever advancing. That is the nature of it. And sometimes this can be a really good thing. Technology can help us connect with people we never would have met. It can help us learn more about ourselves and explore our hobbies. We use it to tell stories and talk about murder on the internet. You know, fun stuff. It has also really improved how we go about solving crimes. Over the years, DNA testing has gotten quite a bit better. In fact, we've gotten so good at it that we have commercialized it. Genealogy testing is the new trend. We use it for ourselves, we use it for our pets. What used to be considered science fiction technology is now actually being sold in grocery stores. <laughs> now, while I thought that I was pretty fancy in school for exploding my own cheek cells to extract DNA, now any commoner can just walk into their local Target up the street and buy a kit to learn more than my rookie science experiments ever could have taught me. And that is pretty awesome. On a personal note, I absolutely adore genetics. I think that it is one of the most interesting scientific fields of study, but I might have had a little push in that direction. When I took genetics, it was with an absolutely brilliant teacher. She was fun, she was encouraging, and she also had a huge true crime focus in her class. We learned all about identifying bodies, how police dog tracking worked, and all kinds of just really cool murder stuff. But more importantly, one day, she pulled me aside and she said that she had a special lab for me to work on. That lab was a blood splatter lab, which meant that I got to hurl fake blood everywhere while giggling like an absolute lunatic to make a fake crime scene. Afterwards, I had to do math and stuff, but that is beside the point. It was the most fun that I've ever had, and how could I not fall in love with genetics after that class? But anyway, the fact that you can just walk into the store and buy a genealogy kit is pretty cool. And this development is making things a lot easier for police, too. We have all heard about DNA testing in criminal cases. It's the turning point in pretty much every true crime show, or any kind of crime show. There is always this inevitable moment where somebody walks in very dramatically and says, the DNA matches. But in most cases, the information is coming from a police lab. At least, that was the way that it used to be. Modern times offer modern solutions, and this is one of them. Did you know that a store-bought DNA test can actually be used by police to identify you? While most people use these kits to learn more about their heritage, they are also giving their DNA away for free in high volumes. And police can access the data from a lot of these kits. I was pretty shocked to learn this, but not as shocked as I imagine I would be if, in an effort to learn about my lineage, I accidentally unearthed the fact that a killer was in my family. For as long as these kits have been out, commercial DNA tests have been causing problems. I've read so many stories about people who learned that they were adopted or that they were the byproduct of a secret affair. I read one story about someone who grew up thinking that they were Italian and then learned that their grandfather just said that because he thought it would be received better. <laughs> but as far as I know, not too many people have learned that they were related to a murderer. Yet. <laughs> it is the kind of problem that only today's society could bring to light. And it happened to the killer's family. This ancient cold case has haunted the police in the area for decades. But in 2019, they finally got a clue. 
Thanks to commercialized DNA testing, they were able to determine that the killer, whose semen was collected from the site, came from a local family. And there were a lot of people in the family that could fit the bill. I'm pretty certain that police didn't do much legwork here, but some scientist somewhere was able to send them in the right direction after piecing together the family tree based on one of these genealogy kits. Ultimately, the police zeroed in on four brothers as the potential murderer, and this is where the story basically turns into a movie. In order to identify the killer, police needed DNA from each of the brothers to compare to what they had. And to get the DNA samples, police got really creative. The first brother's DNA was found by police when they sent someone in to play raccoon. <laughs> police snatched up the man's trash and collected DNA samples from it. They were able to do this by testing his inhaler. Immediately, or, you know, after a brief testing period, they knew that it wasn't him. So, first brother, clear. The second brother is a shining example of why it is so important to have ride-or-die friends. Us true crime lovers are known for sharing memes about how we would help our friends bury the bodies if we needed to, but the second brother did not have that kind of friend. Instead, he had the kind of friend that sat down to have coffee with him and then handed his coffee cup over to the police when he was done. Lucky for brother number two, he also wasn't the killer. But let this serve as a reminder that some of your friends might sell you out if they think that you're a murderer. The third brother is without a doubt the best part of this story because police straight up tricked him into freely handing over his DNA. This was actually a major argument in the case because there is definitely a question of ethics here. Uh, but they walked up to his house and they gave him a little bit of a spiel about policing in the area. Then they asked him if he would be willing to fill out a brief survey. Super easy, right? Well, this dude is like 80s. So what else does he have to do? And he filled it out. When the survey was done, they told him that they needed him to seal the envelope to ensure that his responses weren't tampered with. So he licked the envelope and handed it right over. Less than a week later, he was arrested for the crime. Despite what movies would lead us to believe, obtaining DNA actually does come with a fair bit of legal protection. In most cases, DNA cannot be taken from someone without a warrant, and that is a huge point of contention with this case. Since police were incredibly sneaky about obtaining the DNA, the case was made that it wasn't fair to use it at all. Ultimately, police were able to use it, but I thought that this was pretty interesting. I mean, imagine going through all this effort to get this information. They worked with the genealogy testing service to find the family, then went all super secret spy in order to get everyone else's DNA, and ultimately, they found the killer in a decades-old case only to have some guy say that it wasn't exactly fair. Personally, I would make the case that the killer's actions were far from fair, but hey, what do I know? Honestly, I think that the extent that they went to in order to solve the case was pretty amazing, but... I also have to wonder how stressful all this was for the friend who handed over the other brother's DNA. One of the sources I read said that he was actually a retired cop, which makes me wonder if they told him what his friend was being investigated for. I can't imagine having that secret and then just legally being forced to sit on it. Imagine having to wait for the news to break in order to determine if your friend was actually a criminal. I would be so stressed out. I would be sitting there just 
going wild with my own conspiracy theories. Like, what did they do? Do I even know this person? Is my best friend a serial killer? I would absolutely spiral with this information. But I bet he ultimately breathed a huge sigh of relief when he found out that it was the friend's brother and not his best pal. Still, regarding ethics, I have to wonder what happened there. I mean, the defense was mad about the police tricking the killer into handing his own DNA over, but what do you think the second brother thought about his friend giving over his DNA? There's no doubt that he did the right thing, but I have to assume that their friendship was a bit damaged after that. The third brother's name was Ray Vanny Winhoven, <laughs> and he was arrested at the age of 82 for his crimes. When you learn that someone close to you is a murderer and a rapist, I have to assume it comes as quite a shock. But it did help some people spill the deets on old Mr. Vanny Van Hooven. In general, people seemed surprised, but some people close to the family did let it slip that he had a bit of a drinking problem. While he stopped drinking in recent years due to his health, apparently he used to be a pretty unpleasant guy when he drank. After police identified him, they were able to learn a bit more. First, this was not his first run-in with the law. Many years ago, he had also assaulted two girls. And this part of the story really makes my blood boil a little bit. When he was arrested, it was after violently attacking two teenage girls. He had struck one of the girls repeatedly, and they later identified him to police. When he was questioned about his crimes in court, his defense was to say that he was just trying to scare the girls. You know, like a totally normal, not criminal person does. And because he was just trying to, quote, scare them, the court didn't think it was all that bad. Sure, he just beat up a teenage girl, but that's, it was all just a joke, right? So he was fined $200 for attacking these girls. And as if that isn't problematic enough, the court added insult to literal injury by putting him in jail for six months over driving with a suspended license. Yes, they literally thought that driving without a license was worse than beating up a teenage girl. He was also charged for failing to provide financial aid to his wife and child. Now, given his old age, the trial was kind of unusual. To start, there was a need for a competency trial. According to reports, the killer wasn't exactly fit to stand trial. He could barely walk and he had some health issues. For this reason, they felt that it really wasn't fair to pursue the charges at that time. Fortunately, the court didn't see it that way. While they did determine that he was not competent to stand trial, they gave orders to forcibly administer treatment for some of his medical conditions. With medication, he was restored, pretty much completely, which also meant that he was competent to stand trial. But this was considered fairly controversial because the decision was made right after he suffered a stroke. There's been a fair bit of back and forth surrounding his competency with the case, but the case is coming along and with the DNA evidence, it seems like a fairly open and shut circumstance. In a true example of the power of science, justice has finally been found for Ellen and David.
While I can't help you to avoid killers out in the forest, I can help you to survive out in nature. If you guys haven't joined our Surviving Nature giveaway yet, you need to get on it. The show has been receiving a ton of love, but the contest actually doesn't have that many entries. This means that your chances of winning right now are actually pretty high, and we even give you several different ways to raise the odds and improve your chances of winning. So, if you want hundreds of dollars worth of brand new and totally awesome camping equipment picked out by yours truly, check out the link in the episode bio and get on it. Some lucky winner is going to get a huge boost to their camping supplies, and we look forward to helping the winner stay safe and have fun out in nature. If you are looking for more true crime fun facts, or you want to stay up to date on the show, make sure to follow me at atdatpod on Twitter and Instagram. And hey, if you want to join our growing true crime community or gain access to some upcoming show exclusives, head over to my Patreon at patreon.com slash like and inscribe. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys.